Sorry, parents, proud of you. Happy New Year. Hope everyone's safe and well. I am Matthew Schufreiter, and I am joined by Wakey Wakey. Wakey Wakey, Griffin. Oh, 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 God. I'm sorry, Matt. I've been, I've been hibernating since the last episode we did. Well, I hate to tell you, stuff has changed. Oh, what happened? Is Biden president yet? He's officially President Joe Biden. Oh, oh, good. What, what's happened? Do we, is the show back? We are back, Griffin. Oh, thank God. All yeah. right, I was, I was asleep for way too long. How was your holiday? What? How was your holidays? Oh, uh, I don't know. I was asleep. Oh, okay. Yeah, true. You want to know something exciting for me, Griffin? Uh, what's that? I moved. What? You moved? I'm not in my parents' house anymore. I'm in my own little apartment. I'm in, I'm in my own studio right now. That's lovely. Who's our guest, Matt? Matt, let's stop talking about me. We're going to talk to Meg Elliott. And I, I will preference by saying this episode was recorded back in my old house early January. Uh, so apologies for any past things that we've talked about. Anyway, Meg Elliott is, a is an actor, educator, and according to her, a mischief maker. She is, a, uh, uh, she is an actor, like we said. She likes to study at museums. She has a MAT in museum education. She loves object-based learning. I had the fortune of working with her last fall, 2019, when we did uh, Richard III, and my God, she is so smart and so sweet. It is such a delight to listen to her. And we just dive into her object-based learning, museums, and uh, what was it like growing up in New York. So uh, without further ado, here's our conversation with Meg Elliott. Hi, Meg. Hello. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm holding steady. How about you? Uh, thriving and surviving, as we say. Excellent. I see you. I see you have your Christmas lamp in the back. So you know what? You're the first one to actually notice it on the show. Like what? I, it's yeah. It's so <laughs> iconic. I. You know what? This is we did. I did a Christmas story about five years ago. We couldn't find a real light lamp, so we just hand carved one. And then the everyone in the company was like, "We don't need this anymore." And I was like, I, "I'll gladly take it." <laughs> oh my god. Perfect. Right. I usually like to keep it like right close to me, like in like meetings and stuff. If I'm in like during classes or rehearsals, I just keep it right there. See if anyone notices it. Mm -hmm. um, but you're the first, which says a lot. It's, is it also like a security lamp? You know, you just can hold it if you need it. Yeah. If, if during my darkest hours, I, if I just need something to look at, I just, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's funny. I, I, when I had Jonathan Barry on a couple weeks ago, um, I told him I've been doing the Zoom um, podcast for about a couple months now. And I usually ask people up front, how are you? How's quarantine land? But it always just feels like at this point, we're recorded this in January. We've been doing this for about 10 months now. And I, I, it's like, what, if I, what have you learned is kind of how I want to now rephrase my question. Like, what have you, read, what have you learned about yourself what have you, um, during this time, you know? Wow, that's such a big question. I mean, there's there's sort of like, what have I learned about myself and a as a human being in the world and how I relate to other people? Um, 
and you know that is a you know I realized that there's uh gosh I mean there's so much suffering going on right now and and so many people that are in such hard circumstances and I'm really lucky like I still have my day job I can work remotely I've got enough to eat I've got a warm room like you know I'm frustrated uh like on a more on a smaller more personal level um there was a a big period of time where I was like I don't know if I'm going to be able to be an actor anymore when this is all over I don't know what the landscape of theater is going to look like or if there's going to be a place for me in that um turns out projects have started trickling in so that's cool but um I also think like the um the Black Lives Matter movement and things that I've always cared about it's just been a really strong push for me to uh shut up and listen and learn and do what I can right on on a, on a personal level which is really important to me you know, my, my resolution and now my new message in life is trying to let my head outrace my heart because I feel like this, this whole year, whether it's personal or just around the world, I'm letting my emotions take control of a topic or the problem without thinking straight and actually having clever, straight, real thoughts. So, you know, like this pandemic, for example, as a germaphobe, I'm freaking out and I'm oh, all over the place. And even like in February, when last February, when this was all happening, no, no one else was talking about it. I'm like, guys, we should, we should be hunkering down. And then everything's getting shut down left and right. Sh- shows I was in were getting canceled or postponed. And I just wasn't thinking straight until I had to just sort of lock myself down in my room for about two days to figure out like, okay, what are the given circumstances and what are you going to do? Um, so now like going forward, I can't let every emotion that I have overtake everything. So it's, it's going to be a challenge once again, as a germaphobe or as a neurotic person, which I am. Um, but I rather now know this at a time, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I, I think there's a question of like, how do we rise to the occasion you know, how do we be the best that we can, like the most patient, most creative, kindness, kindest, most, I don't know, diligent, gritty survivalist we can be. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, also recognize, hey, you know what? Maybe today's not the day to go to the grocery store. Maybe you're maxed out, you know, like yeah. figure. And, and that's, and I realize in and of itself, that is a luxury. Not everybody has that luxury. Um, right. It, it's but, funny. It's also, I don't know how you feel, but it's, it took me a long time, even into this pandemic, like maybe a month or two to finally say to myself, you know, you could just stay home and yeah. like read a book or listen to a podcast or take a nap. I, even it took for a long time. I was just trying to like, I was calling up the walls, trying to figure out what to do with myself. I, I don't have a rehearsal or classes was online I was driving up mad um I mean have you ever felt did did it take you a while to realize maybe I just could relax I for me what happened was a a really strange thing where um here's here's the long version uh so I I have um a, a really dear friend of mine is a geneticist and so she's really connected to the scientific community and her husband works in computer security and in, I think it was in January, like late in January, like 
text and talk to this friend all the time, but she's, she sent me this text and she said, Hey, are you, are you aware of this coronavirus thing that's happening in China? I'm like, yeah, it's on my radar. And she's like, I don't mean to freak you out, uh, but it's, it's going to be bad. And then she said, I want you to go to the grocery store and buy at least two work, two weeks worth of non-perishable food. And this is when I knew she was really serious. And she's like, and if you don't have the money, I will send you the money. And that's the moment I went, oh. So I was watching everything for, you know, until things closed down in March, like every day obsessively, I was checking the news and tracking it. And I, I went into work and I'm like, hey guys, this is gonna be bad. And everyone's like, oh, it's gonna be, yeah, we'll pay attention. Right. So when things finally shut down, I kind of crashed because I'd been so vigilant so long, just waiting for everybody else to, to acknowledge what was happening. Uh, so I, I got really tired. Like I was exhausted. Like, so I didn't have a lot of energy to do stuff for a while. Uh, and I think it was grief. I think it was a kind of grief that was happening. Um, yeah, because I feel like, I don't know, in any given day, like 20 to 50% of our bandwidth is taken up with what's happening in the world. Are the people I love going to be okay? Right. You know, all, all those kinds of things. So so sometimes that fuels me and that that discomfort with that makes me active and do things and other days it just wipes me out. Right. Even you still have like my parents, for example, for example, going up to much, we're in the denial phase. Like, what is this? Even like my teacher, so I was telling my teacher about this and he was like, just wash your hands. We'll be fine. Yeah. And now, and I don't know where you are. Are you in like the accepted acceptance phase of like, this is just the new normal that we're in right now? Uh, I, I guess like, I think in some ways I'm like, okay, like every day doesn't, like I'm, you know, my head, my head space is like, oh, here's what I do. And here's, here's the new routine. Mm. So, but there's another part of me that like, is like, we're just in the middle of the mountain right now. We're almost through the middle of it. And soon there's going to be daylight. That vaccine is coming, right. but we got, we got a ways to go before we get there. Right. I don't know you, you probably read the Tribune. There was this article written about the state of fear when this, when it all comes back which I didn't take a look at it. A friend shared it with me and they were telling how upset they were just based on the writing of, you know, the actors are going to look tired. They're going to look unprepared. It's not going to be the same. And that was just the biggest, like, well, biggest question mark of why do you think that? Well, because we were in a year long pandemic and of course, tensions were high, emotions were all over the place. So of course, maybe things aren't going to be perfect. That can't be the actor's fault. I don't know, you're just, this person's just sitting in their room, just writing their opinion. I don't know, I don't know if you read this article or not. Is it the Chris Jones piece? It's the Chris Jones piece. Yeah, so I mean, I, <laughs> I read it and I, I sort of thought of it, how do I put this? Like, I, I absolutely understand why people had an emotional reaction to that. Because we're like, we are hanging on for dear life, you know, in the theater world. And we want to go back. We're dying to go back. So I I feel like that, like in some ways it definitely feels like an insult, but I also feel like, I mean, I'm, I'm rehearsing a show right now. And at first I'm like, oh, am I going to even be able to remember lines? Not, not because I've lost any skill, but because my focus is so distracted, you know? Um, so I think they are, they are sort of questions that 
non-theater people are asking of the performing arts. And I also, I do think it ended on a positive note, but I also totally get why people are frustrated and upset with it. Right. And I think, I also use this phrase, I think I've become a better artist over a better actor during this whole stretch. And I think a lot of it has to do, like you said, with these Zoom rehearsals, you're in a show right now, this Sherlock Holmes play. Um, I, how's that going? I mean, I've been in a few Zoom plays myself and I've had mixed emotions about recording and rehearsing in my bedroom. How's that been for you? Yeah, so the, the rehearsal process has been really interesting because it's, it's all an experiment. Um, and there's, I think ultimately what we are going to do is shoot the play on a stage, oh. um, but one at a time. So it'll be like actor or videographer and that's kind of it in the space. So I'm not, I think it's gonna be really cool to see what the finished product is like, but rehearsing, rehearsing in my room has been crazy because not only do I have to remember my lines and my blocking, I have to remember everybody else's. And most of the time I'm not, so, so like I'm talking to somebody, I'm not looking directly at the screen. Mm -hmm. I'm, so I can't even see my scene partner. Right. And then I'm like, oh, Holmes is walking in front of me and I have to track it or all that. So it's, it's a little bit of a head exploder. Right. I, like, I did a show with our friend Nick Dorado this past oh, yeah. fall. And we both of us looked at each other and it's like, what the hell are we doing? Because like you said, we're looking off screen, not at our partner, not even at the camera. We're just sort of listening. And usually I, for me, I, I, I take in their emotion by looking at their faces or yeah. reading how they're doing. Now I have to just sort of listen. And that took a long time uh, because I have to sort of just imagine what they would be reacting right now, uh, which was for me just rather difficult. Yeah, and sometimes we, we've we done, we're like, hey, let's just stop and let's do it face-to-face -face with each other on Zoom and then go back into the blocking so we know what that reaction is. Right. This is, I do, is Zoom just going to be something that we're going to be stuck with for, in your opinion, for a long time, these Zoom plays and Zoom rehearsals? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I'm no epidemiologist, so... Um, <laughs> But I think there are, there are certain advantages to it. Like I'm glad that we have this as an option now mm -hmm. and it has become a more commonplace option. I'm more excited to see it used for things like on-camera auditions and callbacks and things like that because that can be super disruptive. Like you're like, okay, gotta find coverage for work. I got, you know, or whatever it is and get there or, or um, get a reader or do whatever. So I think uh, I'd like to see more of that happen I also think it's really great, like if, um, you know, sometimes people are in overlapping shows, you know, and it's hard to get from place to place, or they might be somewhere else in the country. So to zoom in for a table read is cool. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. We'll see. It's, 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 a, it's a big question mark, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's another tool in the toolbox. Right. You know, and it feels, it feels a little ersatz, you know, it feels a little like, we really want to be in person, but we can do this for now. Yeah, but and, and it just speaking of the person, it just makes me being in a room even more because of the Zoom rehearsal and Zoom process. I was I was just in the show last month. We did three weeks of rehearsal, and it was just highly emotional family drama uh, called Bad Daughter. And I remember doing the scene with one of the actors, and I told them. Um, 
I'd rather be in the room with you right now doing this because I was all choked up with emotion because we did all the work, we did the process, yeah. and then we just did the scene. And I remember just getting lost in it. And I almost felt me like I, I told my scene partner, I said, I want to hug you right now just because of all the emotion. And it sucked because not only were they in Kentucky uh, and there's just no possible way, um, but we just can't right now. And, and we sort of just have to feed off of the energy from the other room, which is very hard and could be kind of draining, you know? Yeah. And, and I think too, like when, one of the things that's really interesting to me is like, you know, when you're on stage, it's all about being being an amplifier right and depending upon the size of the theater and all those things like you let stuff come through you and you and you tell the story and it's true uh but as it's, it's true as you can make it but it also might be a little bit extended or you know so you can reach the back row like you have a, a really big toolbox and then on camera stuff you know they can at least my understanding i'm no on-camera expert but you know the camera is a lie detector and it can see all these little tiny things but there's something about these little these little cameras and zoom where it's almost like a feels like something you have to push through a little mm -hmm. bit right well speaking of this toolbox i want to talk about your early toolbox you grew up in uh forgive, forgive me if i get the pronunciation wrong scoharie new york is it yes i did okay <laughs> all right that was my biggest fear Galena well done all right <laughs> And I can, I can sleep. Uh, um, so you grew up there in New York. What were you like as a child? I believe the phrase someone said to you were, you were a mischief maker. Is that correct? Well, <laughs> I, and, uh, I, I can tell you were looking at my website. So I, I grew up with four brothers um, and I'm second to the oldest. And I grew up in a very um, sort of ramshackle farmhouse. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I was uh, in Schoharie, like we, I, I don't think we got a traffic light until maybe like 10, 20 years ago. <laughs> like it's a really small town. And so there was, we had to entertain ourselves. Um, so yes, there was definitely some mischief, um, but it was a lot of, my mom was like, go outside and play, you know, every day, two hours, go outside, get out of my face, go play. Um, so there was a lot of uh, sort of storytelling and making up adventures and um, I read a lot as a kid. I was super bookish. Um, <laughs> I was, like I would every day I would check out three books out of the library and I'd read them that night and I didn't bring and then go get three more the next day. Um, so I don't know. I was like a little bit I don't know if feral is the right word, but I was, you know, very, very used to kind of my brothers and I creating our own, our own world. Is this true that you were studying, you, not studying, you wanted to be an archaeologist because you were learning all about, you know, object base in the world around you? Yeah, so I, um, there were a couple things. So uh, my mother would take us down to New York City once a year, and I remember being in um I think I was in first grade so I was just kind of getting a handle on reading and we were the in, in the Egyptian ring at the Met and I could read the labels which was so cool and I remember reading about the canopic jars which are used in Egyptian mummification and so you put the lungs in one and the intestine in the other the heart in the other so and I I remember reading this and going that that's what those are for and 
why would they do that? And, and what does that mean? And uh, I got this book out of the library about mummification and I was obsessed with it. There's this really cool line drawing. I think the artist's name is Aliki or something like that. But I remember, and I was like, there's a way of thinking about the world that is completely different than we what we understand. And I was absolutely interested in sort of the exoticism of it and the magic of it. And then I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark I was done. I was in. I was like, yeah, that's the life for me. Where's my whip? Um, and in, in addition, uh, we had a field. So where I grew up was on, is on Mohawk land, originally Mohawk land. And uh, we had this field that we would lease to a neighbor who was a farmer. So when he'd plow in the spring and then it would rain, you could go through and pick up um, points, arrowheads and scrapers and net sinkers and all that kind of stuff so yeah absolutely like clues right clues about the world that was here before us uh same <laughs> same i love that because same with me i was big indiana jones radio's yeah. fan and when i was watching the movies and the show i was like this is what i want to do i want to go around the world <laughs> and solve mysteries and fight bad guys my dad's like you know that's just a character right you no. don't, they don't really do that and they're like and i'm like really and he's like, yeah, here, try something else. Here's Rocky. Go, go watch that and be inspired. Um, <laughs> spoiler alert, it didn't happen. Um, what did your parents do during all this? Were they involved in fossils or the arts in any way? Yeah, my, um, so I grew up mostly with my mom and my stepfather. And my stepfather would go out. He was the one who started to like look, dig stuff up and, well, not dig, but find them. And then he started taking notes on, on where he found them, which was really cool. And he eventually ended up being on the board of a local museum, um, which, which was called the Iroquois Indian Museum, um, which was really cool. Uh, and then my mom was just always a really, just very encouraging. Like she knew I really liked museums and like, I think, it's again that that sort of storytelling and a connection to the past. Um, so they they were generally really supportive. And when I applied to college, actually, I applied. I was undecided between um, English and archaeology. And in my first archaeology class, I asked a question, and the professor looks at me and goes, "You're an anthropologist, aren't you?" And I was like, "What is that?" <laughs> and I ended up double majoring in anthropology. <laughs> so. <laughs> One question can lead to a whole discovery, you know? Well, and I was like, I, whatever. And then a couple of years later, I was like, oh, he was right. <laughs> <laughs> Did you tell that professor? You were right, by the way. When you no, went to- I didn't. I didn't. Oh. He, he, they probably knew it, let's be honest. Um, so, so then what do you think the acting bug even come from? Because like you said, you went to college and you double majored at George, uh, George Washington University. Did you... Where do you think it, where did you get, you got the bug? Yeah, so actually um, for, for undergrad, I went to Cornell, but I went to grad school at GW for um, museum stuff. So I know my, my bio is probably kind of confusing. Found um, other places. Yeah, but the, the acting bug, I've always, 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 always. Um, and uh, I like Halloween was my favorite holiday in third grade, our elementary school choir did a little play. And like, it was about putting on a play and I'm like, and there was like one, you know, maybe five speaking roles. And one of them was the director of this little play. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that, <laughs> you know? So um, 
it's always been there. And funnily enough, I didn't find out until I was in junior high that my mother had wanted to be an actress. And she met my father when she got, she was in school for food science, uh, but she got cast as a lead in a play that one of the English professors was directing. And this English professor, she called in her son to help hang the lights for the show. Um, and that's how my mom and dad met. So I'm like, oh, it's genetic. <laughs> Runs in the family, right? But always, always, always had it. Yeah, it, it's funny in my research about you, the world of theater and the world of archaeology and the world and this history in general, it all makes sense. Because, you know, you said some of the biggest influ influencers in your life were Jim Henson or Queen Elizabeth or David Bowie, and yeah. just listen to you, it all just sort of makes sense at this point. Because <laughs> like, I would agree, archaeology and maybe just English or theater in general can have a great mix. There's a history, there's a backstory, and at times there is like an emotional connection with oh, yeah. a historical event or person, which can sort of connect to the work that you can be doing. I think it's so interesting. Yeah. Um, so, so then what made you want to go to Chicago? I know you went to DePaul, that's where you got your master's. Mm -hmm. Um, did you have any ties to Chicago? No, I've been to Chicago once on a, I saw the Greyhound bus station. I'd never been. And, uh, I, so I was working at a museum. I was working for Cornell's art museum. Um, and I was really loving it. And at the same time, I got involved with a theater company that had started in Ithaca. And this kind of this slow thing started to happen where I had one summer where I was working at the museum, which the work I loved and really, really enjoyed. And I was in uh, the company I was in, we were running some shows and repertoire over the summer. And I was in two of them and I was costuming a third. So I would get up early to sew and make alterations and I'd go to rehearsal for one, I get a little break. Like they took really good care of me, but they also knew I was busting my butt. Um, and then I go to the other rehearsal and I realized I was, I was exhausted, but I was so happy. And at the same time, I was, um, I was talking to a lot of visual artists, like people who were earning their living through their art at the museum we'd have artists come and speak and you know do installations and all this kind of stuff and I there was just this sort of it took a long time it took a really long time for me to say well what what would happen if I took my art seriously if I really committed to it like how did how is it that these people get to do this full-time like I'm like well they've got training and they've given themselves permission um so eventually I talked to Dave Dannenfelser, who was the artistic director of the Icarus Theater Ensemble. And I said, hey, I want to talk to you about grad school. And he gave me this grin and he's like, I've been waiting for you to ask. And I was like, oh. Uh, but I asked him what good programs were and he recommended DePaul. And I applied and lucked out and got in. How so that's how I ended up in Chicago. Long story. You're right. How did your parents feel? Were they supportive of the decision? Um, they were. It was really funny. So my my mother, um, when I told her, like, because I sat on the decision for a while, like, I was like, oh, 
when I told her, because I'd also been maybe like thinking about maybe buying a house, you know, and really committing to being in Ithaca and settling there. And I was like, mom, I think I, I think I know to need to go to grad school for theater. And she said, I think it would be better for you than buying a house. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, and my, my stepfather is very supportive. My dad, my dad was really funny because I told him and he said, he goes, why don't you just, why don't you just go to New York City and, uh, you know, audition to be in commercials and stuff. And I was like, well, I was like at the time, and I think it was a little bit wrong. I was like, I don't really think I'm a commercial type. And, and I said, also, I need to train, like I need to train to be the best that I can be at my craft. And he stops and he thinks and goes, oh, like Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. If that is how you can understand what I want. To, yes. <laughs> like I can dream. I can aspire. So, so they were supportive. Yeah. And to be fair, Daniel Day-Lewis is kind of his own archaeologist when you think about his own. Oh my God. He's an archaeologist of the soul for sure. <laughs> <laughs> did, what did you take away from your time um, at DePaul and you in the master's program? Uh, it was a really interesting time for me because a lot of the people there had done theater in undergrad and I hadn't. I mean, I'd sort of done it for fun on the side. Um, so there was a lot that was new to me. Um, my mother also died my first year when I was there. Mm -hmm. So I can't really untangle the experience of the, the program from that. It was sort of both the best place and the worst place to be going through something like that. Um, my classmates and my instructors were amazing and supportive. And um, so that was really good. I think I learned to be, to work faster um, and I learned to work smarter. I learned a, lo a lot of technical stuff about physicality and uh, a lot of the vocal training was really, really important for me. Like I had, I had some, some good basis from the experiences I'd had in the past in the theater company I was in in Ithaca, because there was a training component to that. Um, yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, it was, it was really transformative for me. Right. So uh, there, there is this quote that you said, and when someone asked you why acting, um, and you said, because you are braver for this and anything else. Yeah. Um, what does that mean? Were you, were, were you just find, would you um, define yourself as a, maybe a more uh, shy or for, for you versus theater, just a way for you to just speak out and let loose? Oh, wow. Um, I think, yeah, it gives, theater definitely gives me permission to do a lot of things I wouldn't normally do. You know, you want to be all Luke Skywalker about it, you know, kind of connect to your dark side, <laughs> right? Um, uh, but it's also like a, a show might ask things from of me that I am afraid to do, but my character is not afraid to do. Like, I am not particularly fond of heights. I, they are not my favorite thing. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many shows are like, so you're going to climb up this ladder onto this platform, then you're going to fight this person up. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and and I always just have to take a little, even, even sometimes like walking across a catwalk or something, I'm like, so I just, I just take a little time. I take a break and I go up and I hang up on there. I, I acclimate myself. 
and I will, I will learn, I will do it because that is what the part requires. All right. There is also, again, researching, you, you said you kind of learn from this object-based learning. Um, for those, for those actors, or maybe just artists in general who doesn't know what that means, how would you define that? And how does that work for your craft? Oh, yeah. So um, I spent about 10 years working in museums, right? And so yeah. in, the thing about museums is that you have the actual objects there, and there's a ton of information in those objects, right? So you can uh, you can take a look at them and learn about the society that created them, or about the artists that created them. So you know, for example, your your lamp. You know, we we could take some time and do a breakdown of that, right? Right. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's super complicated because it's a it's a prop, mm -hmm. right? That was made. That's based on a film. Mm. that's based on a memoir right right but then there's there is the object in and of itself like what is that leg made out of what is that fringe made out of how old is it what was it used for who used it why why a lady's leg like, so so it's um it's just sort of a, a place a place to start to learn about something and it's really cool too. Like you can, um, you know, you can look at a Neolithic pot and see the thumbprint of the potter who made it right. thousands of years ago. You know, it's, there's, there's something, I don't know. I think about that, um, the, the shared humanity of that. I think that's something that also really interests me in the objects, but I, it's, it's kind of hard to say, but it's, it's using the objects as a primary source. Just the way as an actor, we look at a text and we're like, why did Shakespeare put a comma there? Why doesn't that scan that way, right? Like we're, we're looking for information, like what can that tell us? Right, well now I'm never gonna look at this leg lamp the same way again after <laughs> what you just did. We can write a, a label for it, like a music. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put this right in the living room of my new apartment and just let people just digest it all and figure out what is a leg lamp to you and all that. Yeah. How does, how does this leg lamp make you feel? <laughs> what do you see here? What's going on with this leg lamp? What, what, is, what is the leg lamp telling you right now? Right. Uh, <laughs> do you think that was the artist's intent? <laughs> what are the given circumstances? Uh, <laughs> Jesus. Um, can we use, I think we can, I don't know what you think about putting object-based learning in a theater classroom or in a theater rehearsal. Um, maybe, maybe it has to start with the text first and then once we're up and running, we can sort of play with that. Uh, I don't know, what do you think? Well, I mean, I haven't, I haven't really thought about it in, in that particular context, but in some ways it's a lot like doing Meisner technique. Right. And that you are you are taking you're taking your observations from that thing, but it's not interacting with you in a particular way. Um, but definitely, uh, when there are objects like there's some shows where you have a prop or there's a MacGuffin in the plot, you know, it's the <laughs> that that like an object can become really really important. Or if you have a walking stick or. I was doing, in grad school, I was doing a production of Dancing at Lunasa and I was playing Maggie and I had to bake Irish soda bread on stage, right? 
So that, and so that set is my kitchen. And this is a thing that I've made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. So that whole kitchen was my prop and I had to know where everything was. And, and I became very, very attached to it. Like there'd be a scene where I couldn't look somebody in the eye and there, there's a scratch on the tabletop. And I think about that scratch and how it got there. Like there's, there's ways that we world build as actors and I think object-based learning can be really helpful for that. I mean, in and of itself, it's kind of a particular thing, but I think there are, there are definitely lessons there. And certainly the lessons of asking why and close observation are something that we use all the time as actors. Right. I mean, like when we did, when we met last fall, we did Richard III, but our Richard III was set in a 1930s brothel with bats and swords and you know, we had a, who was the character, remind me, who was the character who had the bat um, the whole time? Do you remember? Oh, that was Alma. Oh, oh um, was, it, was it Radcliffe? Radcliffe, yeah. Radcliffe. Like she had the bat the entire time. And what, how did you, if we really went into full detail, obviously she's not here, she can't explain, but like how many times have she, when she had to use that bat and kill someone, is the blood sting or the scratches there and all that? You know, right. how would they feel? That's um, interesting. Yeah, I kind of I want to use object-based learning, not as a main tool, but as, as a side of different way of, um, you know, looking into something. Yeah, or like for that show, for me, like the cigarettes were a super big deal. Right. They were very key to what I could do when I couldn't say something or I felt powerless. Like, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to smoke this cigarette. Um. So I, what I'm mean, back to you for theater wise, you know, you like, you said you kind of like older stories or um, stories that with that are unexpected and have that can be told in satisfying ways. Um, that kind of goes back to the archaeology. Um, for what for you, what is an example of like good stories, maybe even older stories and maybe stories we never heard of before that trigger you and want to make you to do that makes you want to dive into that work yeah I mean I don't know if it's necessary I would say the there's stories that have really good bones right so those are the stories that last for a really long time and then there are other stories that seem like they've always been there and the author has just unearthed them like I feel like a Christmas carol is one of those stories where you're just like oh that's always been around it just right needed to be told or I think the legend of Sleepy Hollow is another one of those right like and those and those kinds of stories they work on this sort of visceral the hair stands up on the back of your neck kind of way but they also work as social commentary and mm. the craft on them is really beautiful um sorry ask me your question again I think I lost the no, me too. I was getting, I, I lost my question too. No, <laughs> I got lost in your answer. You're totally fine. So you, you like older, you said you like stories with the satisfying, what that's satisfying to you. Um, good bones and stories that haven't been told enough. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, like what stories like that do you think really inspire you or really want to make you do that kind of work? Yeah, oh, that's, that's so hard. Like, well, for example, like right now, um, this this production of uh, Baskerville that I'm in is like Sherlock Holmes is one of those great iconic characters, actually, who I've always wanted to play, right? <laughs> Somebody asked me in grad school, what's on your, what's on your bucket list? And I was like, 
Sherlock Holmes. Um, Sherlock Holmes. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. So in this production, I'm playing Watson, um, who also wants to be Sherlock Holmes. So it right. so, um, but Brianna Arzell is playing Holmes. So our Holmes is a black man. And I think that's great. And our Watson is a woman. And I think that's awesome too, right? So that's something that is, you still get that iconic character, but maybe the way we think about that character and that character's, those characters' roles in the world might shift a little bit differently. So I definitely think um, for so long, like the great 20th century canon, and, and not to say that Death of a Salesman isn't an, a great, great play, but that's about a very particular kind of American. And there's lots and lots more kinds of people in the world. Like I want, I want to see more global drama. I want to see people of color represented more. I want to see women have plays that are about women that aren't about men or trying to get a man, you know? <laughs> so, um, and I, I think I also really like when something happens in a play we're like, oh, I never would have thought, but of course, yeah. you know, that really satisfying fitting surprise where something shows up, they're like, oh, yes. <laughs> you know? What do you think is like up to this point, and maybe the answer has changed over time, some of your biggest inspirations, even now, um, that, make, that make you continue to want to do this work? Oh boy. That's so hard, like, because it's, 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 it's something that's a little bit difficult to articulate. It's something I'm more experienced in the doing of it. Um, but I, I think there are those moments where uh, I'm connecting with the audience. Like, I feel this is gonna sound very wooey wooey, right? But I feel like when things are working well, like, of course I wanna feel like I'm doing a good job and I wanna have fun and you know, all that, that kind of stuff. Like I wanna be, I wanna be really, really good in whatever I do. And sometimes, I, sometimes I'm all right, sometimes I fail. Um, but I always, I always like to think of myself as what, what is serving this story? What is helping this story go through? And when I do, Sounds extra weird. Like when I do something like Shakespeare, like when I'm playing Queen Elizabeth or, um, you know, Desdemona or, you know, all those roles, I feel like I'm joining all those people that ever played that role. And so there is a, there's a duty to tell that story and connect with that role. Um, and it's, and it's really great when you feel the audience buy into that story and invest in the care what's happening on the stage. Uh, I did a show in Ithaca called The Unfortunates and it was a workshop production of this play by Asa Stratford and it's told from the point of view of Jack the Ripper's last victim mm. and she doesn't know that that's going to happen to her uh, but she the playwright wrote it because she felt like the only reason we knew these women's names is because they were killed by a serial killer and we know them from their autopsy photographs and she wanted to bring bring those people back to life for a time and there's a scene where uh Mary Jane Kelly sneaks into the inquest and I play all the other roles and the doctor is reading uh basically the the records of this one patient and it it describes 
what she was wearing, what was in her pockets, and then one by one lists all of her injuries. And aside from a tweak to the order, it's verbatim. It is the, the report. And um, I originated the role and then I understudied in equity production here in Chicago and also got to perform it a few times. And when you read that, the whole room, this weird thing happens in the room and you feel, you feel everybody connect in and go, oh, oh, this was a human being that this happened to. And I think maybe it's that, maybe it's the using the thing that gives me joy and delight to create empathy in others. Maybe that's what keeps me going. Right. You know, for my sake, for me, the biggest inspiration is, is what I like to say is like the fifth week of a run when we're doing a show, you know, like Bring Back Richard III, for example, I was an ensemble character actor with five different parts. And, you know, I played a bartender who's on stage for majority and doesn't talk or he's wiping down the bar. But can you also have some pretty hardcore understudy duties? You don't, I don't want to bring that up. Inclusive <laughs> itself. But you know, by the fifth week of a run, you know, you know, tech week and the first week, we're just exhausted by that Sunday matinee. Yeah. We're running on fumes because we've been doing this show maybe eight times in a week and we're exhausted. And then, you know, by two through three, two, three, four, and we're now getting into it. It's we're now it's through our bodies. But the fifth week for me is always interesting just because at that point, it's either closing weekend or you got like another two weeks left of the run. Um, and you're just sort of running like, all right, well, I can do whatever the hell I want. And then, but that for me, and that's not to say that's what I do now every, every now and then, but that was, from, that's what I thought when I got out of school or just starting theater in college. It's like, all right, screw it. I can just add a line or add a, a, a character choice here and there. But then when I watch like a lead actor, for example, doing this killer monologue or doing this scene with two actors and they're just ripping their heads off for getting into each other. And it hasn't changed, or maybe maybe it's changed, but it's grew, grew even more. That's the biggest inspiration for me. It's, it's like, oh, they didn't even up to this point. They can still there's still something there that they can connect to, and no matter how many times they've been doing that role, you know, Larry, uh, I'm blanking on his last name. Who's been playing Scrooge? Larry Ando. Yeah, he's been playing that role for I think a decade now. For, for him to still, still somehow come back to it and still feel things and connect to it and it never gets old, that is what I think is so cool As a, um, that I just tend to just say to myself, stop whatever you're doing, just watch that, you know? Yeah, so, so the idea of, of digging in and finding more sustenance there versus being like, oh, I'm bored, I'm going to change it up, right? right? Like, yeah, that's hard. Like that, that takes some discipline for sure. It, it, took, it took a long time because before Richard III, I did a play called The Front Page and we did that for seven weeks. Oh, that's a long run. <laughs> yeah. So by like, you know, week four and five, you know, you, you can easily get inspired by another actor and see the choices they're making. And it's like, oh, that sounds fun. I want to do that instead. And then you realize, well, that's, then you're missing something because then you do the end of the show and you're like, well, that didn't feel right. And no matter how much fun I did that new bit and that probably... Um, and you may think that that bit worked for you and the other actor or, but then you realize, well, maybe the audience didn't find it anything rewarding at all, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's sometimes hard to know because you don't, you don't want things to be calcified. You want them still to be alive. 
And some, you know, some of my favorite moments are where something has gone wrong mm -hmm. and then everybody just went, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like I was, I was uh, the last show I did before things shut down was Noises Off and oh. those doors, those poor doors got so abused. Like one of them actually broke during a show. Yeah. <laughs> and we had to fix it mid show. Like, <laughs> <laughs> in character, you know, like. Right, though yeah or like you know and 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 knowing your character so well and knowing how your character is going to deal with a particular issue and not break the world of the play like that's that was also really fun so like those those things are are sort of happy accidents and as long as it's not a true accident nobody gets hurt right. those can really they give you some adrenaline and they're like oh we got this we got this bring it on <laughs> that's, cool. that's great well we have some time and i think it's time we play this wonderful game called okay. Time for two. No right, no wrong answers. Uh, just curious to see your opinion. Are you ready? Yeah, sure. <laughs> You'll be great. I hope so. <laughs> Three, two, one, go. Are you afraid of Virginia Woolf? No. Besides this podcast, what podcast do you recommend? I don't really listen to podcasts. Uh, it, uh, have you ever had Mom Spaghetti? Like my own mother's spaghetti? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it came out of a jar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. She's uh, a great cook, but Italian was not her thing. <laughs> love you, mom. Uh, worst <laughs> job you've ever had? Oh, uh, my last gig. Was I doing this when we did the show together? I set, I set people up for STD testing. Oh, no, I don't think you ever did. Yeah. Um, Oh, what 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 fashion trend should be brought back? Oh, the first thing that popped in my head was pantaloons, so I'm gonna go with that. Yes. Do you wash your hands after going to the bathroom every time? Oh no. If I'm home alone and I know everything was okay, I, I and my 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 theory now is that my hands are so dry and chapped from. Uh, all the hand sanitizer and everything. I would say 99% of the time I do. <laughs> but uh, I know that's a gross answer. <laughs> Ted Tanson, your thoughts. I'm being honest. <laughs> uh, 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 Ted Danson, you like him? Sure, not enough to eat a whole one, but. Okay, <laughs> great. <laughs> no, he's fine. Okay. Uh, does Miss Piggy love Kermit? Yes. Uh, stairs or elevators? Stairs. Favorite ABBA song? Oh, SOS. Nice. Are you a listener or a talker? I would like to be a listener, but I would say, given this interview, I am a talker. All right. Last one. If you moved to Sesame Street, who would you want as your neighbor? Grover. Yeah. That's a good one to end it on. <laughs> Go back to your inner childhood, you know? Uh, well, Meg, before we go, my last question for you is, is um, are your parents proud of you? Yes. Yes, I would agree. Thanks. I would agree. Well, Meg, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Uh, this was always so much fun. And uh, I just want to quickly just say, you know, watching you and learning from you, even just, you know, sometimes when during rehearsals for Richard III and when we're talking, 
sometimes I wouldn't have a follow-up comment or joke because I was too busy listening to the intelligence coming from you. So I'm just like, oh my God, she's so you're wonderful. And I can't thank you enough for coming on here. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Be safe and be well. And I'm, I hope this was useful and uh, that uh, thank you for doing this. Well, that was Meg Elliott. And if you heard from our conversation that she is currently in a show with Metropolis Performing Arts Center. They are doing a virtual production of Baskerville, our Sherlock Holmes mystery. The show opened on January 29th. It is now running until February 14th. The play's afoot, as they say. It's equal parts comedy and thriller with the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes, and it's on the case. Uh, tickets are on sale now. You go to metropolisarts.com for more details. Cool. Right. So we actually want to take some time to talk about, you know, in all seriousness, what has happened for our country the last couple of weeks. Um, uh, well, you're going to have to fill me in. As you know, I've been asleep this whole time. Well, okay. Let's start with the big thing that's going to probably go down in history as one of the most uh, monumental events in that our country has ever faced, which was the, uh, the riot at Capitol Hill. Oh, no, there was a riot. Tell me more. Well, January 6th was the day that uh, they're supposed to um, certify Biden's electoral victory. And that was the same day that former President Donald J. Trump held a rally and pretty much told his uh, it, the crowd to go storm at the stamp, storm the riot, storm at the hill. And they did. People were dead, shot. Uh, a woman was shot and killed. Police officer, I believe, died as well. And I don't know about you, Griffin, I, and seriousness, I couldn't believe what I was watching. I, uh, it was rough. There was, there was, there was just nothing cool or okay about it. Um, you know, with it's, it's, it's one thing to, I don't know, whine about claiming you lost an election unfairly, which they, they didn't. It was a fair election. It, like, it was. Um, it's another thing to openly incite a coup, which is what this was. Um, it was not... It was not the. It was not. It was not a, a friendly protest. Not at all. It was not. Uh, yeah, it it was. It was uh, armed individuals breached the Capitol building with people of with members of Congress inside. Right. And and thankfully, no one in our government was ended up being seriously harmed um but you know it it's it's become clear from all that's come out afterwards about uh sorry i'm 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 dropping the bit now i i i actually was awake while all this was happening yeah i know i i came home from teaching and was watching the hearing and i'm i'm on my computer was nowhere near TV. 
And yeah. And someone was speaking, the senator from, I think, like Oklahoma or Missouri, I forgot who. And all you hear, and then all you hear is the gavel dropping and said the house will be in recess until further notice. And I just thought that people just had enough of what was being said, the bullshit that Ted Cruz was saying. Yeah. Uh, and so I was like, all right. And they cut to like, we will be back. And I was like, all right. So I so then I uh, cut to like my main YouTube page and saw that NBC News was live with uh, with the attack at Capitol Hill. And I was like what yeah and all of a sudden i you you can it felt like i was watching a movie like a, and that's sad and not a happy movie not a happy movie and probably from maybe two o'clock to ten o'clock i didn't leave uh the tv i, I just could not stop watching i mean i i can tell you i mean i'm out i'm out on the west coast and i i'm a fairly late riser in the morning so by the time i was up and at them that day you know they 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 were already well into breaching the capital and um i was horrified and and uh and, angry about it and, and facebook that, certainly got an earful from me <laughs> and the fact that it's been said on different platforms but like the police kind of just let it happen Oh, the police didn't do shit. No, they it, really the the police just kind of laid down and were like, you know, and and I saw so many things of of pictures of what police at the Capitol building looked like back over the, this past summer during all of the George Floyd protests. Right. You know, they looked like they were ready to to go to war. Right. And and in a sense, they they were ready to go to war, yeah. and um, you cut to them at the Capitol building, and it's like, oh, now that it's a bunch of angry right wing white people, right. suddenly uh, you don't seem to care as much about protecting your your federal building. No. And it's a shame, and the fact that I think we're still in the aftermath. It's still not even over. Oh yeah, I mean this this thing this is not, you know this is not a thing that just ends after. What has it been like two weeks, three weeks since it happened? Now, yeah. Um, um and and it's this is gonna be, this is gonna be a thing moving forward. Right. And I mean we we all, I mean everyone kept hearing about in the days leading up to Biden's inauguration uh you know how tight they were being with security at all these events how uh you know they had to essentially like pre-screen like every single person every single like police officer national guard whoever was was in charge of security at one of these things to make sure that that there there wouldn't be another attack um and they had to just tell every soldier Drop your political affiliation and do your job. For me, I think that's sad that we have to like tell people to not associate yourself with politics and then do your job, you know? Well, it's, it's sad that we've gotten to a place where we can't see, where people can't be trusted to just know that. Right, right. 
especially when you work in in that kind of field. You know, I'm I'm sure there were plenty of uh, members of the armed forces. I'm sure there were like secret service people who who probably didn't like the idea of protecting Donald Trump when he was in office. But but they did. But they did. You know, because it's it's your job. It's right. what you signed on for, right. um, regardless of political affiliation. And you know, it's not this this. This is not going to be an easy thing that we're just going to walk away from in in a few months time. This is going to keep being an issue for probably the entirety of of Biden's term. Right. Um, but, you know, we're we're running out of time before we have to go. So Griffin, yeah, my question to you and um and one word: What are you hoping for from the Biden Harris uh, administration? One word: action. I, and I'm going to say determination. Yeah. I don't want four more years of, uh, you know, same old politics where we have to, where we, we have to spend four years trying to move the stick of progress forward one inch. Right. And because that's certainly what, that's certainly what a lot of the last few years felt like before Trump. Right. And um, it's with Trump, everything just went backwards and I think, uh, as we wrap up, I am, I am, I think it will happen. Do I think it's going to be a quick, easy thing? No, but I'm hoping that. Oh, like we said, we voted for Biden because he wasn't Trump, but I'm hopeful that Biden takes the necessary leaps um, to help everyone. And yeah. it's not going to be easy, but by God, if anything, I would say. Kamala Harris is the is the brain of the team, but Biden is the heart, and I'm hoping that both of them can come together and make and make progress. You know, I I hope so. I I you know I I have my own misgivings about this administration too, right. but you know I'm uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give them a chance to to prove my skepticism's wrong. Uh, you know, we're at, as of the time we're recording this, we're what, like four days into the Biden presidency, something like that. Two to three days, I think. Yeah. Um, so, uh, stay tuned. Yeah. Stay tuned. You know, it's, it's, it's far too early for me to say how any of this is going to go. Um, so that's, so we'll leave that there. We'll We'll leave that there. Yeah. Um, and on that note, Matt, where can they find us? Well, if you like what we just talked about, you can email us at uh, parentsproudpodcast at gmail.com. Oh, please. <laughs> oh, I need I need your emails. They feed my soul. Ah, uh, that's great. And then you can uh, find us on Facebook and uh, on Instagram at Parents Proud Podcast. Uh, and next week, we're going to be joined by Travis Monroe Nice, actor, director, the vice president of Big Noise Theater and uh, a current preschool teacher. Uh, uh, so we, we will um, talk to him about that. Sounds cool. Sounds All right. Um, oh, do I have a job this week? Uh, are you, you're, you're the new pillow man. You're the good pillow man. You know what? That's, that's good. Usually I have to make one up for myself. I just gave you, I You're hired, buddy. All right. I'm the pillow man. Isn't that, isn't that a play? 
the pillow man yeah i think it is pretty sure i read that in like theater foundations or something <laughs> you brought it back full circle yeah 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 go that, before you're ready um and on that note folks thank you so much for listening that's griffin mccorrigal i'm matthew schufreiter stay safe wear a mask and we will talk to you next week bye everybody bye.